The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when you saw this woman in grief, you had compassion. You went toward her. You rescued her son and restored him to her. We thank you for this power that you have over death. We praise you for the gift of your compassion for us, that you see us, and that you give us more than we can imagine. Would you give us yourself today as we turn to your word in Scripture, we pray in your name and for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So last week we kicked off a new series of sermons on the ministry of the prophet Elijah called Hope on the Horizon. Throughout this month and next, we will see through this story that no matter how ugly things get, how spiritually confused society becomes, or how hard it is to follow God, we will see that there is indeed hope on the horizon. Over the last 20 years, the number of people claiming to be Christian in the United States has plummeted. The number of people who claim to believe in God, however, has remained quite high. Most people believe in a God of some kind. They just don't know what kind of God he is or how he fits into their lives. Is God good? Is he involved in this world? Does God know who I am? Am I supposed to do anything about him? At the heart of these questions are two questions in particular that sum up our uncertainties. Is God really in control? And does God actually care? Is God really in control? And does God actually care? Those are the questions that matter. And if we're honest, it's not just agnostics who ask these questions. Christians do as well. Anyone who walks through life with open eyes and a tender heart will find himself in circumstances where he cannot help but ask, is God really in control? Does God actually care? Well, 1 Kings chapter 17 drops us into a sequence of events that raise these questions in a powerful and poignant way and then give us answers that reveal the character of God. I hope you'll turn with me to page 299 in those red Bibles so that we can see how. Page 299, 1 Kings 17. 
So last week we were introduced to Elijah at the beginning of chapter 17. And you'll remember that his ministry begins with a confrontation. Elijah goes to Ahab, king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he pronounces a curse on the land. Because of the idolatry of God's people, no rain will fall until Elijah says otherwise at the direction of God Almighty. This means that there will be drought, famine, and eventually death. Well, having proclaimed this devastating curse, the Lord then tells Elijah to leave the land of Israel and go into the desert on the far side of the Jordan River. There, God provides him with food and water while he camps by the the side of a stream. But then we read in verse 7, after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. This is where things ended for us last week. And before we continue into our reading for this week, I want you to notice something. Elijah ran out of water before God explained how he was going to provide for him. The water was gone, and as far as Elijah knew, there was no plan. Now, most of us hate uncertainty. I hate uncertainty. We often experience deeper anxiety and greater stress anticipating bad news than we do when we actually receive it. Can you imagine anything more destabilizing and anxiety-producing for Elijah than to be sent into the desert by God only to run out of water once he got there? I mean, it must have felt like a cruel joke. Now, God had shown Elijah that he could provide food and water in the desert. In other words, he had shown Elijah his power and his control over the natural world in miraculous ways. God had also made it clear to Elijah that he cared about him enough to send food twice a day in the beaks and towns of the ravens. But then circumstances changed. The water ran dry. It's a picture of life, isn't it? We experience God's grace, God's power, God's presence in one set of circumstances, but then they change. There are new challenges, unexpected setbacks, and we cannot help but worry about what's going to happen next. Is God really in control? Does God actually care? Well, Elijah's story continues in verse 8 where we see that, yes, even in these seemingly impossible circumstances, God is in control, and he cares for his people more than we can imagine. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Well, as it turns out, long before the brook ran dry, God had a plan. He had commanded a widow in Zarephath to get ready to feed Elijah. But I want you to notice where Zarephath is. It's in Sidon. Sidon is not part of the promised land. This is Canaanite territory, land of the false god Baal, home to the evil queen Jezebel. This is not the most likely or promising destination for a prophet from Israel. Now, I'm going to hit pause here 
So just hit pause because I need to give you a word of explanation. Just now, I called the, Canaan, the Canaanite god Baal. But it is equally right to say Baal, as Josh Shaftro pointed out to me during our staff meeting this week. <laughs> Apparently, Baal is the English pronunciation and Baal is the American pronunciation. Somehow, during my time living in England, I must have converted to saying ball instead of bail. And it just feels like it's a little too late for me to switch back. So I, I'm so sorry if you were confused last week or 30 seconds ago. And I just want to reassure you, you do not have to worry. I am not going to start saying Isaiah instead of Isaiah. That would just be a step too far. All right, unpause. So where are we? God took Elijah out of the promised land, out of the promised land where he had confronted Ahab, and God led him into the desert, and there God proved that he was powerful and that he cared for Elijah by feeding him every day. But now, God takes him to the other side of the promised land into foreign territory, supposedly controlled by foreign gods, And what does he show him there? Well, he shows him that he's in control there as well and that he still cares for him. But there's more. God cares about his prophet, which which makes sense. What's surprising is that he also cares for those outside of his covenant people. Verse 11, and as she, the widow, was going to bring it, he, Elijah, called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I might go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah." So famine has ravaged the entire region. Not only are the Jews suffering, so are the Sidonians. And they're suffering because of their idolatry. This woman has almost certainly worshipped Baal her whole life. She doesn't fall under the protection of God's covenant. Nonetheless, God shows mercy to her and her family. This woman is also a widow. She has no social standing and likely very little external support. This woman and her son, these are the kind of people who get overlooked and left behind in a crisis. But they are not overlooked by God. Not only does she receive flour, oil, and water from God, she receives his revelation just like the prophet. God speaks to her. Did you notice that when she addresses Elijah, she uses the same language to describe God that Elijah used with Ahab? He's the living God, with the implication that Baal is not. 
Not only does God save her and her household, he reveals himself to her. And in doing so, he makes the widow and Elijah dependent on each other so that she stands before God on equal footing with this prophet, equally dependent on his grace. It's pretty incredible. But just when everything seems to be going well, her situation takes a turn for the worse. That's in verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You've come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Circumstances can change quickly and tragically. Life can be incredibly cruel. And this new set of circumstances, it forces everyone in the narrative to ask once again, is God really in control? Does he actually care? He's shown his power and his care in the desert. And he's shown his power and care to provide food in a foreign land under false gods. But is he more powerful than death? Do those beyond the grave merit his care? We find out in verse 22, and the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. You know, this is the first time in the Bible where God raises the dead. First time. He's healed the sick, he's fed the hungry, he's provided miraculously in countless situations, but he has never put breath back into the lungs of a human being until this moment. The broader context of this miraculous resurrection makes it all the more interesting and powerful. So the Canaanites... They believed that Baal was the god of fertility, of wind and rain and harvest. Each year, though, they believed that Baal would succumb to the god of death, Mot, and the rains would cease and the ground would go dry for a season while Mot held sway over Baal. The dry season would end only when Baal was rescued from Mot after appropriate sacrifices had been made. Only then would the rains begin to fall again. That's the context. So when God, the God of Israel, brought the widow's son back from the dead, he showed up the entire Canaanite pantheon. He was more powerful than Baal because he put a stop to the wind and the rain, and he was more powerful than Mot because he could raise the dead and take them back from the God of the underworld. In that bedroom on the second story of the widow's home in Zarephath, 
The God of Israel proved that there is only one God who's in control of every corner of the world and who is sovereign over life and death. He also showed that he cares. He cares even for those who seem farthest away from him. I've said it already, but it bears repeating. This woman is not a member of God's chosen people. She's an outsider. She's an idolater. She's also a nobody, as emphasized by the fact that we never learn her name. She is as far away from the covenant blessings of God as you can get. And yet, God comes into her home. He speaks to her. He reveals himself to her. He feeds her family and he rescues her son from death. That is the whole gospel message in miniature. In the ministry of Elijah, we get a glimpse of the ultimate ministry of God's son, Jesus. And in the life of this widow and her son, we get a glimpse into the life of salvation enjoyed by those who put their trust in him. When God sent his son into the world, He sent him into enemy territory, controlled by Satan. After his baptism, Jesus began his ministry in the desert where God sustained him and where he showed that he was more powerful than Satan. In the three years of ministry that followed, Jesus fed the hungry, he healed the sick, he raised the dead. He did this in the promised land and he did it outside the promised land, even in Tyre and Sidon where Elijah raised the widow's son. Jesus showed that his power was absolute and unconfined. He showed that he's really in control. He also showed that he cares. As we read, or as we read in Luke 7 a few minutes ago, Jesus also cared for a nameless widow. It was in a town called Nain. Like Elijah, he raised him from the dead, and like Elijah, he turned to outsiders, to foreigners, to idolaters, in order to show them the grace of God. Ultimately, Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins, brutally murdered on the cross, where he was mocked as a powerless king. But of course, three days later, he rose. He defeated our greatest enemy. And he offered the gift of salvation to everyone who puts their trust in him for the, for the forgiveness of sins. Is God really in control? Does he actually care? Yes and yes. Emphatically, yes. Through the ministry of Elijah, God shows that he is in control of every locale and under every circumstance. And through the ministry of Elijah, he shows that he cares for the least and the lost. But this ministry is only a foreshadowing of the ministry of Jesus, through whom our sins are forgiven, death is defeated, and salvation is offered to all. I don't know what circumstances you find yourself in this morning. You may be experiencing a season where it is easy to see that God is in control and that he cares for you. If that is the case, then let me encourage you to rejoice, to give thanks, and to walk faithfully before him in grateful obedience. It is so easy for us to take these seasons and these circumstances for granted. Some of you, however, may be in a very different season 
one where circumstances have changed and God has yet to act. You may be living with uncertainty, grief, or disappointment. You may be wondering if God is really in control and if He actually cares about you. Well, let this chapter from 1 Kings encourage you. God's in control in the desert where we have no choice but to depend on Him. God is also in control in enemy territory where other gods appear more powerful and other stories are told to explain the nature of reality. God is even in control over the grave. He has promised to give us breath and to raise us to new life when Jesus returns in glory. A dear friend of mine was recently diagnosed with ALS. He's in his late 30s. He's married. He's got two little kids. This is a brutal diagnosis because if you know anything about ALS, you know that there's very little hope. Treatments are limited. There's no known cure. In circumstances like this, we pray confidently for a miracle, knowing that God is in control, that he cares deeply for this man and his family, and that he is capable of rescuing him even from a terminal illness like this. Of course, miracles are called miracles because we see them so rarely. God does not always intervene. Now, my friend knows this, and yet he still lives with hope. Not just hope for miraculous healing, which he hopes for, but hope that is so much more certain. He lives in hope of the resurrection of the dead on the last day when Jesus returns to set the world aright. This is the hope that's on our horizon. And that is a hope that no circumstance, no matter how grave, no matter how painful, no matter how disturbing, can ever shake because it's a hope based on the promises of God. Now, it's tempting, it's tempting to read this section of 1 Kings as a hero story, a story in which one faithful man stands up against evil and rescues God's people. Now, Elijah is certainly a hero, but he's not the main figure of the story. This is a story about God. It's a story about God's faithfulness and God's love. It's a story about the hope of resurrection and how only God can rescue his people. We're meant to find hope not in a hero, but in God. And so we follow him through all of our life's changing circumstances, assured that he really is in control and that he does, in fact, care deeply about each one of us. Let's pray. Lord God, every time circumstances change in our lives, we find ourselves asking, are you really in control? Do you really care? We thank you for this sequence of events and the ministry of Elijah by which you show that, yes, you are indeed in control over every circumstance, over every situation, over death and the grave itself, and that you really do care 
for each and every one of us. Lord God, would you comfort us with this knowledge and with this truth and give us strength and hope today to walk faithfully before you with grateful hearts and a song on our lips. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen.